0: Well, good morning. It's wonderful to see all of you again this week and this morning. Thank the Lord for giving us health, giving us the means to gather together as his people. I'll invite you to open again with me in your Bibles to John chapter seven, if you haven't already, and you can find the fortieth verse. John seven forty. And in fact, this morning we finish out the seventh chapter here of John's Gospel. Uh, We saw, when we got to the end of chapter 6, we saw how Jesus' ministry in the north part of the country, up in Galilee, ended. We saw that that ended with rejection. And what we've seen all the way through this chapter, in chapter 7, is really just the laying out for us of how his return to Jerusalem went. He comes down for the celebration. He's going to stay in this region now and it would, be, it would be incomplete to characterize what we've seen in this chapter with the word rejection, like we might with the end of chapter 6. A better word for what we have seen would be the word division. Deep division is what we've seen. Verses 40 and 41 of our text this morning is going to be the third time in this chapter where John will describe division among the people, division among the crowds there in Jerusalem on account of Jesus. And we've gone through this narrative for long enough now uh, that it's, it may be starting to feel like old hat as we hear the crowd discuss the identity of this man and as we hear them express confusion about who he is. You could say that that's a major theme, as we're coming to discover, of John's gospel. Who is this man? Who is he? There's been confusion all the way along, and in these 13 verses this morning, there is still confusion. There's confusion among the crowds themselves. We'll see that in particular in verses 40 to 44. Some in the crowds are going to be saying some hopeful things. Some will say, this is the Christ. That's hopeful to hear them say. We're not anywhere near justified yet in viewing the crowd in a hopeful manner, but that's a positive thing to hear. There will be other speculations as well. Uh, We'll see a group called the officers in verses 45 and 46. They will make a positive statement too, but not one with any clarity in it as to who in fact this man Jesus is. And of course, we will hear from the Pharisees in a moment as well, and the Pharisees don't display anything short of confusion either as to Jesus' identity. So we'll certainly continue to see confusion on display this morning. And in fact, that's the first thing that we'll do in just a moment after we read is look at verses 40 to 44 and try to draw out some new things we see about this confusion in the crowd. However, our attention especially this morning is going to rest on verse 45 and following, verses 45 to 52. Now, because what's on display there, as you'll see, is going to be something of a compare and contrast of two displays of attitude. There's going to be the officers that were sent by the leadership, by the Sanhedrin, the Jewish leadership, and then there's going to be that leadership themselves set against one another. And I want to suggest a certain way of coming at what we'll see there. I think we should couch it this morning in terms that we could describe as willingness to hear when Jesus speaks. So these are the two places that we're going this morning. We'll first see the confusion of the crowd in verses 40 to 44, and then for the rest of our time, we'll look at these contrasting pictures of a willingness to listen in verses 45 to 52. Let's begin by reading the text. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version, John 7, verses 40 to 52. If you're able, please stand with me for the reading of God's word. Nicodemus, who had gone to him before, and who was one of them, one of the Pharisees, said to them, Does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? They replied, Are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. We'll look first and somewhat quickly at verses 40 to 44. Maybe you can tell the reason why. There's much of this that is simply a repetition of some of the very confusion that we've seen earlier in this chapter. This is really another display of the same thing that was given to us in verse 27. These people here in verse 40 are the crowds that have been involved in the disputes of most of this chapter. And we're told two specific responses that they give here in verses 40 and 41. This is one detail that's given to us at this point that's, that's new. It's some of the speculation that the crowd engages in among itself. Some say this really is the prophet, and others say this is the Christ. What we're hearing when we hear them argue between those two possible identities is we're hearing a typical Jewish distinction of that time. They, they, they had in mind that what they were waiting for was more than one individual. We've seen many times now how important it has been to them to be waiting for the promises of Deuteronomy 18, where Moses prophesied and said that God was going to send another prophet like me, and they are to listen to him when he comes. They've been waiting for that Deuteronomy 18 prophet. And the thought at the time was that that promised prophet was a different person from the actual promised Messiah that was supposed to come and to give rescue and victory. One commentator said this, he said, it is possible that Christians were the first to identify the Davidic Messiah with the prophet like Moses, to identify them together. Precisely because they recognized in Jesus the one who perfectly fulfilled both prophecies. Just as it is doubtful that anyone systematically linked the suffering servant prophecies, think Isaiah 53, uh, with the royal messianic prophecies. He says, just as it is doubtful that anyone systematically linked the two until Jesus himself came on the scene. So it's understandable this This debate that they're having amongst themselves as a crowd. But just like we saw already in verse 27, the very mention of the second possibility that Jesus would be the Christ is met with the response that we wind up hearing three times in this chapter. And the response is, there's no way that he could be the Christ because of where he was born. Haven't we seen this already a number of times? Verse 42 in our text. No, no. When the Christ comes, he's going to be a descendant of David. And in fact, he's going to come from Bethlehem. And of course, they have that right, don't they? Micah 5.2 clearly gave them the reason to expect that uh, uh, that detail when the Messiah would come. And we we dealt with that confusion several weeks ago when we first heard that objection. So we're not going to dwell on it this morning. But what ensues then among this crowd is what verse, 33, verse 43 calls literally a schism between them. There is a division among the people because of him. And the temperature rises again on this particular day enough that verse 44, some of them want to lay hands on Jesus. They want to arrest him. And just like we saw in verse 30, which by this point was maybe a day before or maybe two, Uh, Despite that desire that is expressed, no one lays a hand on him. Now what we've seen in weeks past about that, uh, that no one laid a hand on him, is that some of the hesitation is due to the mixed opinion of the crowds. The fact that Jesus had enough public support to make it impractical to try arresting him right there on the spot. We've seen that's some of the explanation for the fact that no one laid hands on him in God's providential care. And we see that again here in verse 44, because there's this division. But we see something new as well. As we start looking at the officers, we need to notice that the fear of the crowd isn't all that's going on in the fact that no one is laying a hand on Jesus. Certainly at the popular level, no one is grabbing hold of him and trying to to take him by force to their rulers. But in the official sense, those sent to arrest him, no one is laying a hand on him either. And that's where we see that there's more than just the pressure of the crowds at work here. Those that have actually come with the authority to make an arrest. Here's what we find. Jesus' words have impacted them deeply. Now that doesn't mean that they have come to put their saving trust on Jesus at this point. It doesn't tell us anything about their heart in this moment. But it certainly means that they have been deeply unsettled by the possibilities that this man represents. And we can tell that, especially because when they go to their authorities and they're asked the reason of, why did you not bring him? They don't say that they didn't bring him because it was too dangerous to arrest him then. They don't say that they would have caused a riot had they done so. They are in such a vulnerable place that they actually answer the question, As they answer it, you see how they answer the question. A man has never spoken like this man does. Now you can tell in in us thinking about the officers, we're shifting now to the second of the two things we're looking at this morning. We're beginning to want to look at the contrasting pictures on display here from 45 to 52 of a willingness to listen to Jesus when he speaks. And this is where we'll spend the rest of our time. It's going to wind up being a contrasting display. As I said, not necessarily a contrast of belief versus unbelief. Maybe that's what we're seeing. It may be that these officers are coming to, to believe in Jesus, to trust him. We're going to hear, for example, in Acts 6-7 of something that will happen here just a couple of years or so from now. That in Jerusalem, a great many of the priests were becoming obedient to the faith. That's going to happen in Acts 6 7. These officers, as we'll see in a moment, are drawn from the priests. It may be that, that these very men are some of those in Acts chapter 6 that are becoming obedient to the faith. I love keeping those connections in mind, remembering as we go through Acts that these are all people who were there as Jesus went through his ministry, who saw these things, who heard him. And no doubt in these times in John 7, God is preparing a great many people for a commitment to his son. But we're simply not told here anything about the genuineness of the officer's faith necessarily. The display that we're told about really is more simple than that. What we're seeing on display is what genuineness, honesty and transparency looks like, compared to snobbery and a stiff-necked unwillingness. Stiff-necked. Does that bring up to your mind other places in scripture, other condemnations? You think of the That is such a summary description for the Jews in the Old Testament as they were being led through the wilderness. You think of it on the lips of Stephen as he spoke to the Sanhedrin later and said, what a stiff-necked people you are. Well, we see this morning two different displays that compare to one another. Let's continue to look at the officers for a moment. Look at verse 45. The officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees who said to them, Why did you not bring him? The officers answered, No one ever spoke like this man. It's worth understanding some things about these officers. D.A. Carson makes the comment that their problem, the problem of, of these men in this situation, he says their problem lay partly in the fact that they were not brutal thugs or mercenaries trained to perform any barbarous act, provided the pay was right. They themselves were drawn from the Levites. They were religiously trained men, and could feel themselves torn apart at the deepest level of their being by the same deeds and words of Jesus that were tearing apart the population at large. And even as we've said that much is hidden from us as to the goings-on in their heart... Everything is not hidden from us regarding these officers. There are some things that are plain to see. Isn't it plain to see, for example, that one thing that didn't happen is that Jesus' words did not simply ricochet off of a stony exterior for them? Can you hear that in how they come back and report what they have heard? I mean, they're replying to their own authorities who sent them, who are clearly angry that they've come back empty handed. And their reply is, no one ever spoke like this before. That's not the reply of men who are trying to get themselves out of trouble, or trying to pass the buck. They could have mentioned the mixed, they had all kinds of options, of other things they might have said that would have taken the onus off of themselves. This is the reply of men who are in an unsettled state. Unsettled by the claims, the arguments, the words that they've heard. But not just the words. Given the way that they phrase their response. It's not just the content of his words that has so unsettled them. It's the manner of his words. It's how he spoke. No one ever spoke like this. No one ever spoke with the authority with which this this man speaks. Jesus' words have struck them. Furthermore, we can tell these words of the officers are words spoken by men who had some courage. Wouldn't it take courage to reply like this? They would surely know that a response like that was going to bring at least ridicule and condemnation. And it does. You notice the mocking tone in the reply that they receive. In verses 47 and 48. Have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does not know the law, they are accursed. Tell me, officers, have any of the real thinkers been taken in by this man? I mean, are you so weak of mind as to be capable of being deceived right along with this accursed crowd? This kind of disdain that we hear from the Pharisees for the crowd, for the unwashed masses, is actually found repeatedly in rabbinical teaching. It's found even in a particular, they had, they had come up with a designation to, to convey what they are uh, recounting here. Uh, they, they had a group that they called the people of the land. You could, be, you could belong to this group. You could be one of the people of the land. That's not a good thing. To to, belong to. It originally was a phrase that referred to the, the Jews who had not left in the exile, to the, those who had mixed with the original or with, with other populations there, mixed blood. Um, after that, people of the land shows up by rabbis in their teaching as a shorthand for the members of their own people who don't know the law. People of the land. For example, we have the writings of a particular Jewish school that formed around a man named Rabbi Mir. The school taught this, quote, if anyone has learned the scripture and the Mishnah, but has not served as a student of the learned, who's that, you think? He is one of the people of the land. If he has learned the scripture, but not the Mishnah, the scripture says of him that he is indistinguishable from an animal. And we could go on and on. We have these pictures of how they viewed those who had not gone through their program, who had not bowed before their authority and their teaching. This is the point of view of those in religious power. It's the point of view of the men to whom these officers are accountable. Those who disagree with us are those whose distinction from animals is debatable. And yet, these officers have been so impacted by Jesus. And providentially, we could also simply say they display such a genuineness and an honesty to be able and willing to tell those kinds of leaders the real reason behind their hesitation. No one ever spoke like this. I like those two words to describe what they've done genuineness and honesty. They are not going to be faced with something as important as this. You remember what the crowd is debating as they leave. Is this the Christ? Or is it the prophet? These men are not going to be faced with something as important as that and be able to shrug it off to save face for the sake of convenience. They can't. They won't. There's something very telling in that. There's something... um, Maybe provocative for us to consider as we, as we hear them respond in this way. I mean, it begs the question for us, doesn't it? How do we react? How do you react when Jesus' words, when the words of scripture shock you? It's not that uncommon of a phenomenon in our lives if we are people of the book, if we are in God's word. We are busy at times. We are preoccupied with life. Um, we drift along at times. And then sometimes as we are as we are confronted with God's word, we come face to face with something that Jesus actually said that we'd maybe never even seen before or that we'd long forgotten that he said. Have you had that experience? And you sit and you stare at it. And in in a moment like that, it makes a great deal of difference, doesn't it? It says a lot. It makes a great deal of difference whether I shrug it off and move on or whether I choose to sit there. I mean, whether I'm willing to, to, to let its force hit me. Did he really just say that? Did he really speak so definitively about that. Did he really say Matthew 6, 15 about forgiveness? If you do not forgive others, then your Heavenly Father will not forgive your transgressions. Did he really say Matthew 10:37 about how I must love him more than I love members of my own family? It's the genuine mind, the honest mind that allows the weight of the words of Scripture to hit me square in the chest. And one thing is for sure, in the text before us this morning, these officers have been hit square in the chest. Now let's continue to think about that, but let's compare it to the religious leaders that John, as he's writing this narrative, put right up against that. And what we're given in verse 47 may well have been the response of the collective group of the Sanhedrin. But you might notice it's the Pharisees in particular that seem to take the initiative in this uh, sneering rebuke, could we call it? We see it beginning in verse 47. The Pharisees answered them, Have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does not know him is accursed. And the substance of what they're saying here is the notion that all is settled here. And it's settled because the educated among them, by which they mean those trained in the law, trained by them in the law. The educated among them had rejected Jesus. And the uneducated among them were the ones considering him and believing in him. We are too smart to be duped by this man. The rest of you poor suckers have been duped. I read one statement about this that I think just just knocks it out of the park. I'm no baseball fan, but I'll use a baseball metaphor. Knocks it out of the park. He said, "The, the religious authorities boast that they have not been duped. Their very boasting is precisely what has duped them. I mean, I think that hits it right on the head. What's going on here? What are we supposed to be seeing? Consider some other statements of Scripture. Consider some of the opening of Jesus' Beatitudes as he is describing life in the kingdom of God. Citizens of the kingdom of God. remember he said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Remember Jesus' prayer in Matthew eleven twenty five. 25. At that time Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. You remember when he said that? You remember the words of Psalm 138, verse 6? For though the Lord is high, he regards the lowly, but the proud he knows from afar. Their boasting is precisely what has duped them. It keeps at arm's length the sincerity, the willingness to listen that we seem to be hearing from the officers. You might peek ahead, if you're interested, at chapter 9 and verse 40, where Jesus is in direct conversation with these Pharisees, and they're catching his drift, and they will say to him there, what, are we blind too? Jesus... (laughs) Jesus... He'll answer them there. He says, if you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say, we can see, your guilt remains. I mean, that's it. That's it. Your problem is the stubborn, prideful insistence that you can see just fine, thank you very much. So long as that is your position about who you are, what you're like, you will never see. And your guilt will remain. Why can they not hear? Here in John chapter 7, why can they not see? He is at arm's length. Now at this point we're given two details that help clarify what's going on for these Pharisees. And it's so helpful because what it clarifies is that this is not a problem of an obscurity in the law. Or a lack of clarity in what Jesus has said and shown. That's not their problem. It's not at all about that. It's about arrogance and stubbornness. It's about pride on display. There's two things I think we see here that really make that very clear. One of them comes from the mouth of Nicodemus. Nicodemus now returns to the spotlight. He was back in John 3. You remember he came by night to speak with Jesus. And that's what verse 50 points to of our text, Nicodemus, who had gone to him before and who was one of them, who was one of the Pharisees, in fact, one of the Sanhedrin, said to them, and notice what he says, remember what just was said before he says this, they just insulted this ignorant crowd who doesn't know the law. And what does Nicodemus point out? But the fact that they're behaving contrary to their own law in their conduct toward Jesus. Verse 51, does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? This is a requirement that you you can see it in the book of Deuteronomy in terms of, of fair and right judging, but it's even more clear in their own rabbinical law of what must be done in the process of considering in a situation like this. Nicodemus' words are not, this is not a strong rebuke, is it? It's not a stalwart defense of Jesus either. It's really a procedural question. But just notice what it points out, both by who it is who says it and what he specifically says. I mean, the leadership just denied that any important person believed in Jesus, and one of their own number immediately speaks up. They condemned the multitude for not knowing the law, and he immediately points out their own disregard for the law. And notice in particular what that disregard is. It's a disregard for the commitment to listen. Does, a man, does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? So that's the first detail that we're given here that really makes the point quite clear that they're handling this Jesus situation out of an arrogance that refuses to listen. Listen in an arrogance that shows this isn't even about the law because they're jumping to an immediate condemnation without any genuine consideration the second detail here that makes that plain comes from their mouth in their response to nicodemus just listen again here their law driven educated reasoned reply to nicodemus's question Thank the Lord that God has given the Jews such a um, capable of of emotional uh, withdrawal, clear-headed group of people to resolve these disputes. Here's their response. There's two parts. The first part is verse 52. Are you from Galilee too? What a great response to this raising of a law violation question. They simply reply with contempt, with snobbery. His question was so far beneath them that it only deserved ridicule. However, it is followed with a reply. The second part of what they say is more of an actual reply. And here's especially, I think, where we get the second showing of the lack of genuineness in their thoughts here and how they are handling this. They say, are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. Now, that is so bad that some have tried to suggest that that can't be what they actually said. Now, they must have, have, I mean, liberal scholars will, see, will say, well, see, there's just a mistake here. Uh, others who, who trust God's word will say, is there any way? They might have meant something else here by this. Maybe they were talking about the prophet, like the Deuteronomy 18 prophet. Maybe that's what they're saying, that that prophet doesn't come out of... Galilee. I don't think there's any way that's a solution here for several reasons. Number one, that's just not what it says. They say uh, a prophet, not the prophet. Um, But there's other reasons as well. The, The Old Testament never specifies anything about the origins of Deuteronomy 18's prophet who's going to come. It never says anything. So there's nothing for Nicodemus to search and see regarding the coming prophet that he does not come out of Galilee. The scriptures don't even tell us. That It really seems like this is what they said here. And the reason that it's so bad is that it's just blatantly inaccurate. Jonah and Nahum and quite likely several others came out of Galilee. They, they, we know it. Prophets came from Galilee. What this really sounds like here is one of those emotion-driven things. You've done this before. I've certainly done this <laughs> more times than I care to admit, you get into an angry, intense situation and you blurt something out in frustration without thinking. And sometimes what comes out is is what wouldn't come out if you had put more thought into it. But what does come out are prejudices or true opinions that you might not have voiced in that way. Those things come out, don't they? And it fits very much with the way they conceived of not just the people of the land in a general sense, like we've seen. But it fits very much what they thought about Galileans, specifically. Galileans, those in the north country, in that region of Galilee, were, in fact, sort of the deplorables or the flyover country. We, we hear some of those kinds of terms uh, thrown around in a derogatory way in our time, don't we? There's always been this sort of behavior. Galileans were that for them. There's a long entry in the Talmud. The Talmud is a collection of rabbinic commentary and stories. I went and found this and read this entry. It's actually hilarious uh, in a sad way. Uh, But this this entry is a series of stories where they lay out instances they're mocking Galileans for the ways that they mispronounce words so bad that you can't even understand what they're saying. And this is in the Talmud, and they're telling these stories. And there's others as well trying to give examples of how uncivilized the Galileans are. This this is their stuff. I mean, they're not ashamed of this. So it seems to me that the Pharisees are really showing their hand here in a moment of honesty. Why would I need to call this man up and get a hearing from him? This Galilean does not deserve to be given the time to be heard out. And the only people that would possibly think that way would have to be Galileans themselves. So what what about you, Nicodemus? Are you from Galilee too? Now just step back and see John's twofold depiction here of these two groups put right beside each other. You've got the officers that we heard from, and you have these Pharisees and, uh, and religious leaders, the Sadducees. Do you see how clearly they stand in contrast to each other? They are polar opposite pictures of some genuine willingness to listen compared to a settled unwillingness based on a solid foundation of arrogance to even give consideration. This man cannot possibly have anything to teach us. If he had known his place, if he had gone through our school, gotten our blessing, Maybe he would have something to say, but he hasn't, and he doesn't. What a difference. And can I tell you, it's exactly the sort of difference that God has intended to put on display by how he has chosen to work in this world. This instance is not at all surprising to us if we've heard God let us in on on the plans and intentions behind some of his purposes, which he has done in abundance in his word. What does he tell us? He has chosen what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. He's chosen what is weak in the world to shame the strong. 1 Corinthians 1.27. You remember Paul's recounting to them, not many among you wise, not many powerful But God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the strong. None of those things mean that it's somehow better to be uneducated than to be educated. It's not about that at all, is it? This is telling us that God has seen to it that he does not save us by means of our great intellectual abilities. Or our superior education. Or our birthplace. He has not saved us by using those means. He has saved us by humbling us before him. If we are to enter his kingdom, we must become like children. Isn't that what our Lord said in Matthew 18.3? And he was talking about humility, submission, willingness to follow, willingness to listen. And so it is that these officers, whether they've been truly converted at this point or not, God has used them to put on full display for us. How important is the answer to the question? When Jesus speaks, do we listen? It's really that simple. Do we listen? How much are we called by God's word to live from a posture like that, of a willingness to listen when he speaks, when wisdom himself speaks to us? Think of the Proverbs. Proverbs 12, 15. The way of a fool is right in his own eyes, but a wise man listens to advice. Proverbs 18, 12. A fool takes no pleasure in understanding, but only in expressing his opinion. Proverbs 18.13, if, if one gives an answer before he hears, I just think Nicodemus' question, if one gives an answer before he hears, it is his folly and shame. Proverbs 19.27, cease to hear instruction, my son, and you will stray from the words of knowledge. Jesus said back in chapter 5 that it was the Old Testament scriptures that testified about him. He's going to say in chapter 14 that the Holy Spirit, when he comes, here's what he will do, Oh, blessed helper, that you should want me to leave so that the Father would send to you. Here's what he'll do. He'll bring to mind to you all that Jesus has said. 1 Corinthians 1.30 says that Jesus Christ became to us wisdom from God. So who are we listening to? When we doubt our own inclinations and thoughts, there is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way to death. When we doubt our own inclinations and thoughts, well, then whose thoughts are the trustworthy ones? My friends, there's an entire Christian worldview that springs from this question, isn't there? And it springs forth from Scripture, Consistent and fruitful living absolutely hangs on the notion that where Jesus speaks, we listen. It hangs on the truth that's declared both in Proverbs 14 and 16. That there is a way that seems right to man, but its end is the way to death. We're supposed to be warned in those warnings. I am not going to be the litmus test for what is reasonable, for what is right about myself, about God's creation, about God himself. I am not the litmus test. I am going to listen as God speaks, and I'm going to learn from him, like a child. And my friends, when we choose not to think that way, when we choose not to live that way, we make the same mistake that our Lord has set before us this morning in the Pharisees who, listen, who knew so much. And certainly, even beyond the reality of the case, they were so wise in their own eyes, weren't they? So wise that they refused to be deceived. When wisdom himself would come and speak to them. They refused to be deceived, and in so doing, they sealed their own deception. That's what they did. I would encourage you this morning. I'd suggest that God's word encourages you this morning. As you begin another week full of opportunities, full of questions, full of hopes, full of temptations, full of potential reasons to be afraid and potential reasons to be complacent, As you go to God's word, and I pray that you do regularly, as you go to God's word, listen. Listen where he speaks. Come to his word not as a task to be completed, but as a person that senses in it the very food that you need in order to live. Because God's kingdom is not made up of the wise as a defining attribute. It is made up of the humble. Because that's what he gives to those whom he calls. He gives humility. And thus his kingdom is made up of those who do not tremble before their own opinions or instincts or assumptions. They tremble at his word. Oh, may God make us more and more to tremble at his word. Let's pray together. Father, we bow once again as a body before you in gratitude. We thank you, Lord, for not hiding your word from us, not hiding your truth. Those of us here this morning who have come to know you, to be known by you, to be called by your name, we joyfully acknowledge that we are in that blessed state because you came to those living in darkness and you brought light. And as we fled from the light, you grabbed us, you subdued us to yourself. You opened our eyes to see what we would refuse to see forever, to our everlasting damnation. You opened our eyes. And once we saw you, oh Lord, we could never look away again. We thank you for your perfections. We thank you for the patient ways that you reveal yourself to us, that you reveal ourselves to us by your Holy Spirit. And God, we do pray that you would further equip us this week in light of what you have shown us, that we would be a people who are eager and quick to listen when you speak. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.